Welcome to Case by Case. This is a podcast brought to you by Luke Zadkovich and Callum Chain of Zyla Floyd Zadkovich. How are you today, Callum? I'm very well, Luke. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. This is a, uh, a fun one to be doing on my holidays. The, the commitment. The commitment. Exactly. The commitment. Uh, look, I enjoy these. I, I really do. I, I don't find them a chore at all. And this case today is no different at all. It's it's a real juicy one, a big fun fight over not much money, frankly, uh, in the scheme of things, in the High Court of England, the Commercial Court. And uh, we have a judgment that was handed out only recently on the 10th of August, 2022. Parties' names are Eastern Pacific Chartering as the claimant and Polar. Maritime Limited as the defendant. It's a case we've touched on before on jurisdictional grounds. At a time, I think we just get straight into this one, Callum. Um, yeah. But I'm looking forward to it. I really am. Yeah. And I think the first thing I would mention is that this is a very shippy shipping case for two reasons. They're, they're basically the, the the judgment has two two key parts to it. One is speed and performance, which is maybe as, as kind of shippy as you can get almost. And the other is uh, wrongful arrest. Each of those components makes this a, a great one for our, our, our listeners in the shipping industry and the shipping markets. And equally, it was, I thought, very interesting that they had uh, Ms. Claire Amb- Ambrose sitting as the deputy judge of the High Court for this one, because she is obviously someone who is phenomenally experienced in these specific kind of shipping issues um, and has written a number of papers on, you know, shipping arbitration and shipping disputes practice. So un- unsurprisingly, she was all, all over the details on this one. Absolutely. And and really, and I know we say this quite a bit, but highly recommend reading this decision if you've got a speed performance claim or indeed if you've got a wrongful arrest type claim. Yeah, I or thought if you're it about was to go re- for an arrest, which is a little oh, bit on, oh, the, yeah. on the edges. Exactly. Or if you're about to go for arrest or if you've got clients who are concerned about bringing arrest and they're wanting to know the, the test for uh, whether it might be considered wrongful or not. We get that question a lot when weighing up whether to arrest a ship. And we'll get into the into that in a moment. But I, really, if you have a speed performance claim, read the judgment. If you've got a, an arrest you want to bring, you want to challenge whether it's wrongful, read this case. It, it's really a, a good case. Now, what, one question that struck me before we get into it, into the meat of it, is why do we have a decision? Why has this gone all the way on um, such small amounts? Yeah, and on such technical issues, I think that's the other. That's the other thing. The, the cost of running this would have been high because you needed a lot of expert input on the speed and performance issue. There was a lot of foreign law involvement on the wrongful arrest issue. But at the same time, if if the parties can't see eye to eye, then there's not much that, that you can do to make them it's you know it's one of those where people people take a position and it, you know it might not be the kind of million dollar claims that perhaps we often we often see going all the way to the courts but sometimes there's just a point that parties can't get past and then by the time you know by the by the by the time it's moved a certain distance along in the in the in the procedural process there's more costs behind it there's there's more entrenched positions there's a lot to be said in this for the early settlement, you know, the sooner you can get it done, particularly with a with a claim that has small quantum, the earlier you can get it resolved, better because that means that your your costs don't then become a you know sizable portion of the quantum. 
Yeah, exactly. We don't ultimately know what happened on costs. No, that's not dealt with in the judgment, but I think that would make for very interesting reading. My take on it was I just wondered whether there was a, a, a wider context to this one, whether there was a, an arbitration up the chain, because we were dealing with, as claimants, the disposal owners and the charters below them. And in that charter party, so the charter party, the subject of this decision, there was an exclusive high court jurisdiction clause, which is not that common. Typically it will be an arbitrary London arbitration, LMAA, um, clause that's in the charter party or indeed other jurisdictions around the world, particularly it will, usually it will be an arbitration decision or arbitration agreement, not an exclusive court jurisdiction clause. And that's, that was interesting. So they may not have been back to back on the forums. So they may have had an arbitration agreement up the chain and a court jurisdiction clause in this charter party down the chain. And what they needed was actually a finding in the court proceedings that they could then take into the arbitration up the chain. That's complete speculation. I don't know that there may not be an arbitration, but I wondered whether that might be part of it. It's, it's entirely possible. And I think actually the, although it's rare that you see these types of uh, issues before the English high court, particularly speed and performance, there is a lot, an awful lot of material from the, um, LMAA reported, uh, well, the LMAA summary judgments or summary awards on speed and performance, and particularly on an issue that rose here on whether you have to apply a current factor for a positive current. And it's nice that this one went to the English high court because we, we now have something to kind of tie a knot on this, you know, maybe eight, 10 awards that have, that have come out in the last 10 years or so that, that touch on this and they go a number of different directions and each turns a little bit on the specific wording of the charter party, but at least there's some good guidance now from the, from the high court on, on the way that the, the law is, you know, is, is going to progress on, on speed and performance. Yeah, absolutely. Because this is a, a decision of first instance. Usually when we're seeing decisions from the English courts, it's because they've been appealed on a point of law from an arbitration award. Anyway, re- really interesting um, as to why a lot of speculation in there. I also wonder whether there was just bad blood because yeah. of the nature of the wrongful arrest, people getting well, alleged wrongful arrest, I should say. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you, you know, that may well have led to entrenched positions and they just you know, struggled to resolve it because it, after the first court decision on jurisdiction to hear the wrongful arrest claim, which ultimately was allowed to be heard, that's why we have this decision on that point, there was some encouragement to go off and mediate. I think it was at the CMC as well. The parties were encouraged to go off and, you know, explore ADR to see whether the matter could be resolved and the mediation was not, did not even take place. I think it said, so they were pretty entrenched in this one. Yeah, indeed. So where, where do we go first? We've got two options. We've got speed and performance, so we've got wrongful arrest. Which one do you want to tackle first? Let's, let, let's do the order that the, the judge has done it. Let's tackle speed and performance first, eh? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that sounds sensible. So, so. This was basically a balance of account issue. There'd been deductions made by the defendant on the basis of a failure to achieve the speeds that, that were set out in the, in the charter party. And the, the claimant was therefore claiming for a balance of account. So, so strictly speaking, the defendant was the one claiming a breach of the, 
uh, speeding performance warranties or a breach of the obligation to proceed with due dispatch or alternatively the obligation to deliver with a clean hull and I think also claiming an off hire for uh, time lost due to a defect in hull. They're the defendant in the case, but really they're the ones pursuing this claim. And yeah, yeah, because <laughs> the the disposal owners, they were, they brought their claim for unpaid hire. And the defendants, the charters, were arguing up the chain that they didn't have to pay higher or that there were damages for, you know, breach of performance warranties. So it was actually kind of reversed in a way in terms of the analysis. Yeah, exactly. And for me, the most interesting part of this was the current factors, because that's the part where I've looked at the law on this a couple of times recently. And until now, you can't really advise in a way which is, which is that straightforward because the arbitration awards, at least the arbitration awards that are, that are summarized and, and published in that way are, they, they go back and forth on this. And I have mm. to say, reading this judgment changed my mind about what the correct approach is. Effectively, starting from the, starting from the start, there, there are kind of two ways of looking at this. The, the first is that if you are a ship owner and you give a warranty of performance in good weather, and in that warranty, you say no adverse currents, then the question is, if you're steaming along, and you manage to achieve the speeds at the efficiency that you say that you're that you that you're capable of achieving, um, but you do so with the benefit of a of a positive current. Then, are when when you go through the calculation to take into account the vessel's performance, is the charterer entitled to say, well, we we have to adjust that calculation because you had the benefits of a positive current? And there's been decisions back and forth on this. Obviously, if the mm. charge party is clear on that, then it's fine. There's, you know, there's, there's no discussion, but most charge parties that I've seen will, will have an express exclusion for adverse currents, but they'll be silent on positive currents. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, the, the position with the currents, and we had two, two leading experts in this case, uh, for, for each of the parties and they were both commended on, on the evidence they gave. There's one part of, of one of the reports that that came from another expert within the team, but I, I don't think we need to get into that. But a lot, and a lot of what they had to say was not in dispute, but there was a, obviously quite a bit that was. But one of the areas on this, the, the current analysis, is that it's, it's actually difficult to assess the direction of the current, right? When you think about it, like how, how do you know if the current's completely in a, a positive direction or is it just slightly off? And, and maybe there is some friction associated with it, but there's some benefit. And I, and I thought on the technical side of it, that it was quite interesting, actually, that when you're, when you're looking at positive currents, it's, it's somewhat difficult to actually assess the positive currents. And there's an open question as to whether the, uh, whether reporting companies are reporting them with sufficient clarity, enough data to be able to give reliable indications as to what the positive current allowance should be. Yeah. And this, this was the first, the first thing that came up that I, that I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. Quite how difficult that was because normally when you see these weather reports that are prepared by these weather companies, you, you can see quite clearly what, that they've, they, they, they set out what the current is as far as they're concerned. So I always assumed yeah. that, that it was kind of that, that black and white clearly it's nothing like that black and white. And the second factor that one of the experts mentioned was that actually there's a there's, there's some navigational technique in finding positive currents and the, there's a, there's a good argument, I think that the owners or the vessel, perhaps you could say, 
should should have that credit if the you know it's almost part of the performance of the vessel is having a master who's able to navigate using currents in a way that you know that's favorable to the route and, and favorable to everybody and there are a whole host of reasons why that would make good sense and it's you know almost a good matter of public policy that you know the parties should endeavor obviously to try and re reduce their uh, you know make make the ships as efficient as possible and go from a to b in a manner which is as efficient as possible and actually there's a you know that it's 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 not just a kind of vicissitude of fortune whether you hit a hit a favorable current or not there's there's some you know navigational skill that goes into finding a positive current and using that to assist the vessel to proceed efficiently yeah that shouldn't be held against them like there exactly. should almost be an encouragement or an incentive to to find those positive currents because it's really in the interest of everybody involved owners and and charters yeah, exactly. So, so the so the judge was was persuaded, as I was actually reading this by the by those arguments, and said actually, if the if the charter party is silent on currents, then you, then you do as an owner, you do get the benefit of the positive current. You don't have to adjust for it. And previously, I'd thought this this probably should go the other way because the speed and performance warranty to me is not is not saying that the vessel will go at that speed in those weather conditions. It's saying. The vessel that you're, the service that we're providing is a vessel which is capable of this performance. And if it's only capable of that performance with, with the benefit of positive current, then you know, my previous view was, well, in that case, it's not capable of that performance because it's, mm. you know, it, it needs the help. But actually reading this, I, I do think there's a number of, a number of reasons, the, one we've, the ones we've just gone through to say, actually, no, the, the, if, if you can achieve those speeds, then you should be encouraged to do so however, however, however you want to, or however you're able yeah. to. Yeah, yeah, I, th I thought it was an interesting, interesting part of the the decision actually, and it's a, it's a good one, as I said before, to to see how the expert and technical evidence is being presented, how what was what what swayed the the judge, how to kind of lead this evidence if you like, if if you're a practitioner in subsequent cases, and how it should be presented, and and where. Where, where are the points to kind of focus on? I, I thought there was, there was some really instructive kind of ways in which this was, this played out. The, the other area that I thought was quite interesting on the, on the speed performance side of this dispute was the possibility of having different methods for assessing whether a vessel has performed or not. And, and what you've been talking about there, which is common approach and, and the one that's used in practice day in day out is the good weather method where you take a period of time during which there is good weather and often it's difficult to find that period but a sufficiently long enough period where there's good weather you look at could uh, the vessel meet its warranties of performance speed consumption during the good weather period and then you extrapolate that out over bad weather periods as well. Makes a lot of sense, easy to apply. What if though, there are no good weather periods? In this case, the argument was, well, in those situations where you can't, when you don't have the benchmark, when you don't have the period of good weather to assess whether the vessel was meeting its performance or not, that's it. There's, you don't get, you don't get an underperformance claim because it's not possible evidentially to make out that claim exactly. and, and, and the, the discussion here was, and it was argued, um, by the charters, well, no, there's another method by which, by which you can assess underperformance. And they, they argued in the alternative that it was the, this RPM method where you 
look at whether you, you look at the RPMs that the vessel was reaching here. I think it was around 92 or not above 92 RPMs. And the expert argued that 96 would have been what it needed to be hitting to reach the, the speed. And they had a you know, complicated equation to work out what the RPMs should have been to make the speed and, and what the, the speed actually was over this period and working back using the RPM, the RPMs actually achieved to say, well, it was underperforming. And it may not have been underperforming. It wasn't, uh, Charters argued, it wasn't underperforming because of the weather. It was just running at lower, at lower RPMs and there was no way it was going to get to the warranted speed at those RPMs. And, I, I, and so then what the court did was explore, well, is, is it possible to have an alternative method? Question number one. Question number two, was the alternative method, if so, was the alternative method pleaded here a good one or not? And, and, and let's talk that through. But I, I thought that was, it was really interesting, actually, for the court to conclusively look at whether it's possible to bring an alternative method. And, and the answer is that it, it, it is possible. And you can make out underperformance claims in methods other than the, the good weather method. Yeah. And this, this also goes to, often you see a claim for underperformance twinned with a claim for a failure to proceed with, with utmost dispatch. And it, this kind of covers you off from that other angle as well, because you can say, well, the, the engine, the, the RPMs simply weren't fast enough for the vessel, for it to have been possible for the vessel to go at the, at the speed required. And that's a failure, you know, to, by, by the master and crew to set the, to set the, the engine to an RPM that would be capable of achieving the speed that the owners have warranted the vessel is capable of doing. So it's interesting in covering off that point. And I think more broadly, you know, if you look, if you look back through the law on speed and performance, it does always, as this one has really, tend back to the kind of conventional way of looking at speed and performance, which is as you establish whether, the, whether or not the vessel underperformed in good weather and absent words to the contrary, you extrapolate that underperformance across the period of underperformance, even in bad weather. And that's, that's ultimately how it happened here. But, but all of the authorities are clear to say, this is not the only way that you can establish a breach of this warranty. This is just exactly. the way which is, which is most sensible and well, you know, easiest if you have good weather, but it's not the only way to do it. Yeah. And, and, and the difficulty here on the alternative methods of this RPM method was that the judge found that it just wasn't sufficiently reliable in the facts of this case. I don't think it wasn't a finding to say you couldn't use the RPM method in any case. You, you probably could, but you needed to deal with a few other evidential issues and lead evidence on them to get around some of the unreliability aspects of the RPM method. And I thought that was, it was quite interesting. So, you know, if you're in a case where you're struggling to find clear weather, but you really do think that there's, there was either failure to prosecute the voyage or there was underperformance for, for some other reason on the owner's side, that you can sit down with your expert and work through, well, is there another way that we can make this out? Is there another way evidentially that we can make this out? And on evidence, I thought it was interesting that the master wasn't available again. Maybe that goes to the, the disponent owners, head owners point. Maybe they didn't have control of the master to be able to present the master. But in, we've had cases, haven't we, where 
we might be on the charterer's side and the master's not available to give evidence. And it does put the owners in a difficult position if they don't have someone evidentially turning up to actually explain why they did this, why they did that and defending their position. Yeah. And it, th there's one other point on the speed of performance angle in this case that I, that I think is quite interesting. And I think this judgment gives an answer on it, although not directly. And so the reason in this case for the underperformance appeared to be hull fouling. And that's why, for example, a claim was raised for a breach of the obligation to deliver the ship with a thoroughly efficient hull. Now, there are two things. One is a breach of the speed and performance warranty, which means that you're unable to go at the speed that you warranted. But the second is a breach of the obligation to deliver with a thoroughly efficient hull. And there's an open question, in my view, as to whether the damages for a breach of a failure to deliver with a thoroughly efficient hull are the same as the damages for a breach of the speed and performance warranty. Because technically, you, you could say that you, what you should be looking at for that clause one breach for the failure to deliver with a thoroughly efficient hull is what would have happened, how fast would the vessel have gone if we had delivered with a thoroughly efficient hull? And that's not necessarily the speed at uh, the speed and performance warranties. And this has come up a couple of times in cases that we've been involved in. So say, mm. for example, the, the, there, are two, there are two stages to, the, to, to a voyage. The vessel's delivered with an unclean hull. It goes halfway. It then has hull cleaning. And it then outperforms speed and performance warranties for the second half. If, if you look at the first half of the voyage where you have a claim for either underperformance or for breach of the obligation to deliver with a thoroughly efficient hull, then are, is, is your claim for th this breach to deliver with a thoroughly, thoroughly efficient hull, is it based on the difference that, between the speed that you went at and the speed that, the, that you warranted? Or is it based on the speed that you went at versus the speed that you ultimately then went at with, a, with actually a thoroughly efficient hull? And it looks here as though the judge basically said, well, they'd all come to the same place anyway which I think is the right decision because I think that, I think that probably the, 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 the level of efficiency that the hull would need to have to comply with clause one or to not be an off-hire event under clause 15 of the NYP form would be a, a hull which is efficient enough so that the vessel can meet the speed and performance warranties. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got to read the two together. I, yeah, I, think, that's, I, think, I think that's right. I think that's right. That, that makes sense to me. Right. Okay. Yeah. There's, there's a lot in there. There's a lot in there. And there's, there weren't a whole lot of hours in dispute. What were we talking? 16 hours, I think, ultimately. Ultimately, um, 16, ultimately they found that it underperformed to the tune of 16 hours. I think that the defendants <laughs> were, were going for more, but I think they got 16 hours and I think the rate was going off the top of my head. I think it was around about 18,000 a day for the ships. So. Yeah. Well, there was a double recovery argument. They're yeah. trying to get the the whole failing on top of the underperformance as that was struck out on a double recovery basis. And there was some, there were some other points in there as to why it was uh, cut down, but yeah, so not, not much really in dispute, but we've got a, a really interesting decision. Um, thankful for the parties for running it to get, to give us the decision, I suppose. Well, exactly. Sh should, should we skip on to wrongful arrest? Let's, um, let's look at wrongful arrest. Cause I think that's a, there's the, the, the question here really is how wrong does an arrest have to be to be wrongful? I like it. I like how you put it. <laughs> because, because this arrest was straightforwardly wrong. Yeah. They arrested yeah. someone else's ship. Yeah. And also what can you rely on, right? You know, um, what are the, so, so, you know, just to, to paint, 
paint the picture here. The disponent owners brought a an arrest against a ship that, let's just say, was associated with the charters in some way. And they relied upon Lloyd's investigative report that described the charterers as the beneficial owners. And I say that loosely, there was a dispute about what the report actually said and didn't say, but there was enough in the report for the disciplinary owners to argue that this other ship, the Polar Devora, was beneficially owned by the charters. They went to Gibraltar, arrested this other ship, the charters turned around and there's some nuance on this about different lawyers representing different parties turning up and saying different things. But essentially what happened was they turned around and said, well, no, here are the registry extracts. We we're not involved in that ship. It's owned by a different entity. There's no beneficial ownership. There's some chartering connection. Sure. But from, from looking at the actual ownership, the charters are not involved in that ship. This arrest is wrongful. They offered an LOU, which responded to only the owners that were involved in the other ship, which was pretty much useless to the, to the, the claimant disponent owners here, because they have a claim against the charters against Polar Maritime Limited and the LOU was offered for the owners of the other ship. So they said, no, we're not going to accept that LOU. There was more toing and froing between the parties and ultimately the disponent owners backed down and said, okay, we're going to, we're going to let the, the ship go, release the arrest. They were basically persuaded that the actual documents show that Polar Maritime Limited, the charters were not the beneficial owners of this other ship. Security was, was then agreed 10 days later or some, some moment later after this other ship had been released. We don't have the details about, you know, whether anything else was done to get that security, but since prevailed security was offered for what is a relatively small sum, but the other ship had, had been arrested. It lost time. There'd been some other losses kind of down its chain that had been brought into the, into the mix as well. So the charter is in their counterclaim in these proceedings were saying, well, uh, this other ship has suffered losses. We're bringing that as, as a counterclaim. And so the question was, well, when the disponent owners relied upon the, I think it was actually two bits of evidence, C-Web and, and also Lloyd's that suggested the charters were connected with the other ship. Was that, was that done in, in, in an honest way? Was it done reasonably? such that it was not wrongful. And, and that set up the analysis of, well, what is the test for uh, a wrongful arrest? Yeah, exactly. And, and it seems like there's this, this two-stage process and the one which is the, the one which really this, this turned on was whether they could show this, you know, crassa negligentia, the kind of gross, gross negligence level, or alternatively a finding of malice in what the, uh, arresting party had done and it was a really interesting discussion and I thought that the, the, obviously, you know, Ms. Ambrose will have, you know, been involved from time to time, presumably on it, on advising around these arrests. And clearly there was, you know, the, there was very, a very good understanding of how it works and the, the fast paced nature of going for one of these arrests and the back and forth emails and the party saying, no, you've got the wrong ship, you've got the wrong ship. And the other party saying, give us the security. We need the security to get the, get the release. And then finally you get these documents that prove that the, that the arrest is, is, is not correctly made. 
And very swiftly after that, the ship's released. And I think ultimately reading between the lines, the that was pretty critical here to the decision was that when when the uh, when when the defendants showed that the vessel had not been correctly um, had not been correctly arrested, it, the arrest was lifted in very short order, and. I think that that you know that that gave some sympathy. Um, where the judge the judge had some sympathy there with the arresting party because she, you know she, clearly the judge felt that it was it, you know it's reasonable to try and hold on and make the most of your arrest until you see you know clear proof that the arrest is is not going to be upheld. And at that point, to move swiftly to to release it doesn't mean that you've satisfied this you know this threshold of malice or or gross negligence in in making the arrest. Yeah, exactly. So, so essentially, the the party arguing that an arrest was wrongful, such that they're entitled to damages, they need to show malice or gross negligence. And here, the arresting party had publicly available information that suggested that the party that they were going after was uh, involved in the beneficial ownership of this other ship. Now, we know that, and I'm sure the the judge, this guy, to the judge to some extent, that it is possible for owning entities to clarify with these reporting agencies out there what the actual ownership was and what was reported even on the registered ownership side of things wasn't accurate here and and, and the that was a point that was instructive for the judge that the owners hadn't actually properly updated the the reporting agencies if i can call them that and also i think there was this overriding view that came through not a formal view but you know, almost sentiment that, that that's pro-arrest. And when you think about it, I think it's a- absolutely right that for parties in a charter party situation where their counterparty has assets that move all over the world, the other party may be based in a different country, enforcement issues are real, and there's this whole body of arrest law around the world, different jurisdictions that give availability of arrests. And Parties should not be deterred from bringing arrests for security for their claim. And now this wasn't formally part of the decision, but I found it was part of the flavor of the decision in that if there's reasonable evidence to rely upon to go and get an arrest, you go and get the arrest, you're not going to be punished for it. As long as you're not acting with malice or gross, grossly negligent, you're not going to expose yourself to wrongful arrest damages. Then, of course, if the other party turns up and says, look, you've got it wrong, you've got the wrong party, here's the proof. If you then reflect upon it and say, okay, fair enough, release the vessel, you're not going to be stung with with damages. And I, and I, I see that as a, a pro-arrest type view. And in my personal opinion, I think it's absolutely the right one. I agree. And I think we, you, know, you have to factor into that the way that the market works and the it, there did seem to be some association between the, you know, the target company and the and the entity that actually owned the ship. But as we know, in the you know in, in the market generally, there is there is the practice of having ships owned by you know by by individual ship owning companies, and that that all makes it more and more difficult for a party to secure a claim. So if the courts are a little bit on the side of well, you know, there there was enough for you to have a go. And when you you found out, you know, categorically that you were wrong, you 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 withdrew the arrest. I think I think there's good sense to that from a just public policy perspective. Yep, totally agree, totally agree. And look, when I got to the end of this one, I was like, okay, so 
Well, actually, before I, before I read through the whole case, I, I wanted to get a bit of a steer as to who ultimately won this one. And I jumped to the end and I was like, oh, okay. You know, it was a finding in favor of, um, in favor of the charters. They made a recovery on the, on their 16 hours. And then I, then I thought more about it. Well, they actually lost on the wrongful arrest. They had their speed performance claim cut down on a numerical sense, at least more than half, I think. You know, what would have been the ultimate result on costs in this one? It's, it would have been a really fascinating discussion on costs. I'm not sure we've got time for it today. And I don't think we'll, we'll, we'll find out about it unless this goes further, which I highly doubt, but look, lot, lots in it, really interesting case. Uh, I enjoyed this one more than I was expecting to going into it. And any final remarks from you, Callum? No, I think, I mean, I just found it a very interesting case. It's, there's, there's stuff in this case that has come up a number of times in, in practice and it actually creates some helpful law, particularly around speed and performance. And then there's also just really helpful guidance on the arrest points. I thought it was very, a very good decision. And the one thing I would say is that the saga may not be over because there was an express reservation by one of the parties to raise a, a certain point on appeal around wrongful arrest. So maybe. I saw that. I saw Maybe that. Maybe it will continue. I saw that. I know. I know. That's why, that's why I said it. I'm like, I, surely not. The only thing that would make it go further is costs that yeah. actually when we're, we're not talking about 16 hours anymore, we're talking about 200, 300,000 pounds or more. Um, it was a four day hearing. It, it could yeah. well have been, it could well have been more actually when I think about it, because you have all the costs of the earlier one, mate. I know that was decided that those costs would have been sorted already. Look. Totally agree with you. And uh, the, the one other thing, I could be completely wrong about this, but someone, someone else out there, have a look at it as well. But para 109, and I, I wasn't going to mention this, but I, I couldn't help myself because it's a mistake I make every now and then, is I think in 109, there's reference to the claimant established. I don't know, but I think it should read the defendant established. And how many times have we sent out advices where we, we flip around the owners and charters and clients come back and go, actually, don't you mean the other one here? And I thought, I thought if I'm right, and I could, I could be wrong, but if I'm right, it's like, okay, we, we keep good company. Exactly. We do. <laughs> Perfect. Right, Cheers, mate. Luke. On that one. Take care. See you, everyone. Bye.